Turn with me to Matthew 13. This is where Jesus has been teaching the people in parables, and he's given them a series of parables. Uh, if you remember, the Greek word parable for parable is parabole. It means to cast something alongside of something else. In other words, Jesus is taking an earthly story that all the people understood, and he's casting it alongside of a heavenly spiritual truth. And for those people who are hungry for God's word, then those people who are hungry for God's truth, uh, the parables would open up their eyes, open up their hearts to receive more of what Jesus is teaching. But those who had hard hearts, uh, a parable would actually keep them in spiritual darkness. Last time we looked at the most important parable, it was the parable of the sower, and we saw how the parable sowed seed, and it fell on four different types of soil, and Jesus explains the, uh, what that's all about. And we saw that the four types of soil represent four different types of the human heart. It says the first seed was thrown out there, and it landed on the wayside, which is like a sidewalk. It's the, around the edges of the field where all the people and animals would walk. It was packed down hard. So when the seed landed on that, it wouldn't take root. It would just sit on the surface, the birds. Jesus tells us the evil one would swoop down and take the seeds, and that would be the end of that. So then he says the second type of soil, it was the very shallow soil, and um, the seed lands on it. It takes root very quickly because there's no depth in the soil. It would grow up, but quickly wither and die when the sun came out. And Jesus says that's what happens when people are not grounded uh, in the Word of God. They don't get deep into the things of the Lord. It's very shallow. It's an emotional experience. He says when a trial comes, not if, but when a trial comes, then they will quickly wither and die. They fall away. The third type of soil was that where the seed takes root, but because there's so many weeds and thorns in the soil, it chokes out the Word as it tries to grow. And so that's somebody that's uh, full of the deceitfulness of riches, he says. They're very caught up in the things of this world, and they don't produce any fruit either. But the fourth soil is the heart that receives the word of God, which is the gospel of Christ. And as a result, Jesus produces an abundance of good fruit. He says some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. So now as we come into chapter 13, verse 24, he's going to give us another series of parables about sowing the seed of the Word of God. And this first parable we're going to look at, it's interesting because um, after he sends the multitude away, uh, away, this is when the disciples say, tell us about this parable. We want to know about this one. And we're not sure exactly why they want to know so much about this one, but he'll explain that later on when we get to verse 37. So we'll pick up chapter 13, verse 24. It says, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Now, so the wheat comes from the good seed, it says, that was sown, it produces uh, good fruit, you know, the, the wheat bears fruit. Uh, the tares are also sown. Uh, the tares are also known as darnel grass, and they, it's over in Israel, and it looks just like wheat as the two are growing up together. You can't tell a difference. Notice that the enemy of the sower says, came around at night, 
when the people are sleeping and planted these tares among the wheat. Verse 27. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. So the, the tares, the roots of the tares would tangle up at the roots of the wheat. So if you tried to pull up the tares, it would just pull up the wheat. So he's going to tell them, let it grow up together. So verse 30, let them grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn." Again, it's really hard to tell the difference between the wheat and the tares when they are growing up together. But as the wheat started to sprout and was close to being harvested, the weight of the wheat kernels would cause the wheat to start to bend over. It's almost like in humility bending over. The darnel grass had no wheat and it was standing up straight. And that's how you could tell the difference. It's like standing up in your pride but also, did you notice here, he says the reapers gathered up the tares in bundles and they were burned. The wheat's gathered up into the owner's barn. More on that later. We'll see when we get to verse 37. So verse 31, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, there are basically two ways to interpret this uh, parable here. One way a lot of people look at this is they say, well, this pictures the healthy growth of the church. It started with 12 apostles. It's grown into this worldwide, you know, thing that's spread all over the place. That's true on the surface. The apostles, especially the apostle Paul, took the seed of the word and he went throughout the Roman Empire and planted a lot of churches. A lot of people got saved. The second interpretation that I lean towards is that this little mustard seed was the smallest of the agricultural seeds. Uh, just a very tiny seed. They plant it. And if you've been over in Israel, when we go to Capernaum, there's some really tall mustard seeds that grow along the road there. And um, it'll get 12 to 15 feet high, big enough for birds to nest in these trees. This picture is the unnatural growth of the church. It would grow so big that the evil birds, Satan's ministers, would start to nest in its branches. These are like the tares among the wheat. Yes, it started off in an amazing way with the apostles, but by the third century, it already started to get weak because of all the unorthodox branches that started to grow around the church. Remember, Jesus just told us the birds represent the evil one, Satan. Satan is always trying to infiltrate the church. He's always trying to cozy up with others. He's trying to plant seeds that look the same, but they're very, very different. Satan has had deceitful workers lodging within churches for the last 1,700 years. When you go back and study church history, the Emperor Constantine, around 313 AD, 
he supposedly gets saved, but he makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Prior to that, for 250 years, the church was persecuted, and it was flourishing under persecution. Then he says, no, now Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire, and that's when all kinds of crazy things started coming into the church. It really lost that simplicity and purity of their devotion to Christ. Over the next few hundred years, the church became very powerfully uh, powerful politically, I should say. This is when the papacy came on the scene. This is when the priesthood was developed. This is when worship of Mary came on the scene. This is when indulgences were developed. Um, the word of God was being replaced by the words of men. Hundreds of things were either added to or taken away from the Bible. If you go through the book of Revelation, and I believe Revelation 2 and 3, not only gives us those seven churches way back when, but it's also um, seven churches give us the ages from Pentecost to the rapture of the church. And you see with the churches of Pergamos, which means thoroughly married, that's when the church started marrying with the things of the world, and Thyatira, which means uh, perpetual sacrifice, like Jesus being perpetually sacrificed during the Mass, that was not a good time. That was known as the Dark Ages. And Jesus comes against those two churches in the book of Revelation. Hopefully by now, you realize that large crowds, it doesn't always mean an endorsement for sound biblical doctrine. Sound biblical doctrine is great when it's in large churches, but we need it in every church. Sound biblical truth. We always need to be Bereans that check out the scriptures to make sure what people are saying about Jesus is true. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, this is what we need to be like. Paul commends these Bereans. These were more uh, fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. It says, "...in that they received the word with all readiness." and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And that's in context, the Apostle Paul going to Berea, and he's teaching there in the synagogue from the Old Testament, all these things about Jesus, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they're searching the scriptures daily to make sure Paul is on track, make sure Paul is saying the right things about the Messiah. And so he commends him for that. This is something we should all be doing. Examine what others teach and say by searching through the entire scriptures. All, all the Bible is God's word. This is why we stress verses like this. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture, that's Genesis to Revelation, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's another church that Paul commends, again, the church of Thessalonica, that uh, initially they didn't receive, but then he says this, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. 
Now we know from Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We also know that if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, God can do great things, awesome things through us. But again, in this context, it's the unnatural growth from a little tiny seed that turns into this 12 to 15 foot tall tree, the mustard seed, and this plant, he says the birds start to nest in it. It produces bad offspring. This next parable shows the same thing. Look at verse 33 here in Matthew. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Again, some say, well, see, it's just spreading throughout the world. Leaven, every time leaven is used in the scriptures, it always refers to sin. It always refers to putrefaction. It's not a good thing. The Jewish people knew everything, exactly what Jesus is saying here, because they knew all about leaven. This is what the Passover was all about. The Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows Passover. You'd have to go through their house. They'd look for leaven. They would sweep it up, take it outside, get rid of it, because it represents sin. A little leaven will spread throughout the whole lump of dough because leaven is simply yeast. You just put a little pinch in there, and over time it'll permeate the lump of dough. This is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Your glorying is not good. He's talking to the Corinthian church about them boasting that, hey, we're free to live in sexual sin. That's what they were boasting about. He says, no, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us because Jesus is perfect. He was without sin. He died. He shed his blood for you and me. Jesus will warn us about the leaven of the Pharisees. He'll warn us about the leaven of King Herod because those men were puffed up. They were full of pride. They were full of arrogance. They were corrupt in so many ways. So leaven, it's always used as a symbol of sin. And only Jesus can purge out the old leaven, the sin that permeates all of our hearts. You know, before we get saved, we're sinners. We need His salvation. Only He, through His blood, can cleanse us of all sin. Whenever leaven and false teachings are present, it'll start permeating Christian churches, and we'll start losing our focus about Jesus, and we start drifting away from the truth of God's Word, and then the love around us goes from agape love that we are to have in our hearts to... A humanistic love of tolerance. Oh, we got to tolerate all this sin. As Christians, we should tolerate all this sinful behavior. No, that's not what the Bible says. We're to stand against these things. It's not love when it turns into compromise or tolerance for things that Jesus is not pleased with. Verse 34. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And so part of the reason Jesus taught them in parables was to fulfill that prophecy from Psalm 78. But it's amazing to me that Jesus is saying things 
that were kept secret, he says, from the foundation of the world. Because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and because we have received the fullness of the Spirit upon our lives, we now know what the Scriptures teach. We have a teacher, a helper, the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus tells us in John 14, 26, concerning the Holy Spirit, but this, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. We have a tremendous advantage over the people that were hanging around Jesus before the day of Pentecost, because we have the Spirit in us, hopefully upon our lives, and so we can go through the Scriptures and it makes sense because the Spirit is the one who teaches us and brings to remembrance the things Jesus has taught us. Well, look at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and His disciples came to Him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now, it's interesting to me, this is the only one they asked him to explain to them. And so they want Jesus to explain this particular parable to them, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Maybe it had something to do with the fact that he's talking about bundling up the tares and burning them in fire. I'm not sure why, but he tells them, he lays it out for them in rapid succession what this parable means. Look at verse 37. Very simple, very clear. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels." So that's about as clear as you could be. The sower is Jesus. The field, he says, is the world. The good seeds are the true believers, the followers of Christ. The tares are the imposters, the make-believers that Satan has planted in, you know, alongside of Christians. And when all is said and done, he says the angels will gather up the tares, the unbelievers, and cast them into the fire. We know it's the lake of fire in the end in the last days. In the meantime, we need to be on guard. We need to hold fast to the truth of God's word. We need to watch out for sheep, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing because Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds, he's speaking to the church of Corinth, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So we need to be careful because Satan is very crafty. We're going through Galatians on Tuesday mornings, and it says in Galatians 1 verse 8, this is Paul warning about Satan's false gospel, but even if we... Paul says, or an angel from heaven. Every time I read this, I think of one particular angel, <laughs> Phony Maroni. The angel Moroni is what the Mormons say, came and brought them this new gospel. So if any other person or angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. 
There's only one gospel that saves, and it's in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. It's very clear. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in the tomb. He rose from the dead on the third day. That's the gospel in a nutshell. He died for the sins of the world. You have to put your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. We know his, uh, his crucifixion was good in the eyes of the Father because he rose from the dead. If he stayed dead and buried, then he's just another religious guy. But because he rose from the dead, he can offer the free gift of salvation to anyone who will come to him. So any other gospel where you add works or you got to do these things to earn salvation is a false gospel. Paul talks about, you can write these down, Romans 10, verses 1 through 3, he talks about the enemy encouraging a counterfeit righteousness and is referring to those who try to become righteous in their own strength by keeping the law. He said, Jesus tells us in Revelation 2 and 3 that there are counterfeit churches. Again, there's five out of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that Jesus rebukes because they're doing things wrong. Don't forget what Jesus already said. Look at these verses in Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not? And these are all good things, but notice, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Then I, Jesus says, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They weren't genuine believers, and so Jesus cast them out from his presence. He continues to say, look at verse 40. Therefore, Jesus says, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their Father, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this is quite the explanation that Jesus gives his disciples about the parable of the wheat and the tares. He says at the end of the age, what's the end of the age? What age is he talking about? He's talking about this present age. At the end of this age, and what follows this age is the kingdom of God. When Jesus returns at a second coming, he's going to establish his kingdom on earth, and it's going to be a kingdom that lasts for 1,000 years. It tells us six, uh, five times there in Revelation 20, this kingdom age lasts 1,000 years. It's for 1,000 years, for 1,000 years. I always have people say, well, how long do you think it's going to last? Oh, dude, I don't know. 800 years? No. I mean, no, he says 1,000 years over and over again. He says what he means. He means what he says. So anyway, at the end of the 1,000 years... He is going to raise up all those who have died without Christ. They're going to be sentenced to the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. But this present age in which we live in, it's going to come to a quick halt. It's going to end with a bang, literally. It'll end when Jesus returns from heaven and he comes back to earth. He wipes out his enemies. He sets up his kingdom. And here Jesus says he's going to send his angels out and reap, gather up, all of his enemies, they're going to get cast into the furnace of fire. Again, 
He says there'll be wailing or weeping, gnashing of teeth. By the way, Jesus talks more about hell than he does heaven. That is a fact. Seven times he's quoted as saying, this place will be a place of weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. In the furnace of fire, also known as the lake of fire, the enemies of God will experience pain and suffering forever and ever. The Bible does not teach annihilation, where you just stop existing. You will either be with the Lord forever and ever in glory, or you'll be separated from Jesus forever and ever. This scene is clearly revealed in the book of Revelation. After Jesus removes his bride, his church, there will be a period of seven years known as the Great Tribulation. It'll be a time when God will pour out his wrath upon a wicked, Christ-rejecting world. At the same time, multitudes of people are going to get saved during the Great Tribulation. We read through there that there'll be multitudes of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation that come to Christ during that horrible time. They'll be known as the Tribulation Saints. We, the Bride of Christ, will be removed beforehand. But just when it seems like the entire planet is about to be wiped out, that's when Jesus returns. He talks about this in Matthew chapter 24. I can't wait till we get there, but here's a preview. Matthew 24, verse 21. Jesus says of this time frame, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Remember why these days need to be shortened, because you've got the wrath of God being poured out for seven years. You've got Battle of Armageddon taking place, basically World War III. You've got Satan and the demons running crazy all over the world, tormenting people. So Jesus says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh, nobody would be saved, nobody would exist, but for the elect's sake, that's the Jewish people, those days will be shortened. Jesus will save a remnant of Jewish people. It tells us in Zechariah 12.10, when he comes back, every eye will see him, they'll mourn for him, they'll even ask him, where'd you get those holes in your hands? Jesus will say, I got these in the house of my friend, my friend's. In Revelation 1, 7, it says, Behold, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. When he returns, they will recognize Jesus is their Messiah. In Revelation 14, we read about an angel who's told to thrust in his sharp sickle, gather the clusters from the vine, for her grapes are fully ripe. So look at this verse, Revelation 14, verse 19. It says, For the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs, which is about 180 miles. Can you imagine a river of blood running from the Valley of Megiddo, where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place, runs all the way through Israel, through all the different valleys. It's about six feet high to the horse's bridles. Well, you've got to know what's going on here. You've got the Battle of Armageddon, and it also tells us at the same time you've got these 75 to 100-pound hailstones, ice, hitting people on the earth, turning things into tomato soup. You've got, it says the sun is heated up and it's scorching everybody. 
At the same time as these hailstones, everything's melting, everything's flowing. It's going to be brutal beyond comprehension. And then in Revelation 19, at the second coming of Christ, we read about the Antichrist, the false prophet. They're captured. They're thrown into the lake of fire. It says they will be there forever and ever. After the kingdom age, that thousand-year reign of Christ, all the wicked will be cast alive into the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. Again, it's recorded at the end of Revelation 20. Right now, today, we tell people good news. You're thinking, well, that wasn't anything good about what you just said. That's why today we give people the gospel, the good news, that Jesus does love them, that he died on the cross for their sins. He shed his blood as the only acceptable payment for our sins. And part of the good news is that when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will not go through the great tribulation. Praise the Lord for that. That's part of the good news. You will not face the wrath of God. That's because Jesus took all the wrath, all the punishment, the penalty for sin that we deserve, he took it upon himself when he hung on the cross. Remember what he cried out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment on the cross, the Father is pouring out the wrath judgment we deserve for our sins. That's good news. And because he took it upon himself, we will never have to experience the wrath of God because Jesus took it in our place. For everyone who rejects Jesus as Lord and Savior, they will have to face the wrath of God on their own. But that's going to be brutal beyond comprehension. We can't imagine how wicked, how horrible, how deadly that's going to be. So today we tell people the good news first. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, Jesus took all the punishment, the pain, the penalty for our sins as He hung on the cross, was sacrificed for you and me. And as a result, Romans 5, 9 says, much more than having now been justified by His blood. So if you're born again, you're justified by the blood of Christ, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Praise the Lord. You're not going to experience God's wrath. Jesus experienced it for us. And because we're in Christ, the wrath is taken care of. Here's more good news about this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, this is the gospel in a nutshell, that whether we wake or sleep, whether you're you know, living or dead, we should live together with Him. We'll never be separated from God as believers. To be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. When a believer dies today in Christ, they're not separated from God. They instantly go into the presence of the Lord. We'll look at that here in a moment. So that is not only good news, that's great news. We won't have to face the wrath of God. We have passed from death to life. We've been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. What good news we have to share with those who are lost and dying in their sins. Now... If and when those you share the good news with continue to reject the good news, 
then you bring in the harshness of what's going to happen if they reject Jesus Christ. Then you tell them the bad news of God's wrath and judgment. Jesus' half-brother, Jude, this is what he says in Jude 22 and 23. He gives us his balance. On some, have compassion. In other words, you just love them. You tell them the good news, what Jesus did for them. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. In other words, for some people, they're going to turn to Jesus when they realize how much Jesus loves me. He died for me. Oh, this is amazing because I know I'm a sinner. I know I've rejected the Lord. I know what I deserve. But then others, they get hard-hearted like I was. And sometimes you need to have people say, you know what? If you die without Jesus, here's the consequences of rejecting him as your Lord and Savior. In other words, you put a little fear of the Lord into their hearts. I would guess that most people respond to Christ when they understand both sides of the same coin. We know what we deserve, but praise the Lord for His grace. Praise the Lord for His love and His goodness, His mercy. He loves me so much, He willingly died for me, and He's willing to forgive me of all my sins. It's only through Christ that salvation is given as a free gift. Romans 6.23 sums it up like this. For the wages of sin is death. What are wages? Well, that's what you have earned. I worked really hard as a sinner, and that's what my wages should be. Death, eternal separation from God. But here's the good news. But the gift of God, that word gift literally means the free gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you pass from death to life when you come to Christ by faith. He comes into your life. He saves you. You're a new creation in Christ. Your old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Now look at verse um, 43 again. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what an extreme contrast between those who reject Jesus and those who receive Him as Lord and Savior. He says, we are the righteous ones. Now don't ever think you made yourself righteous. Don't ever think, well, I tried really hard. I worked at this really hard. Our neighbors to the west of us, that's what they think. They will make themselves righteous by keeping all these ordinances of the Mormon church. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We're righteous simply because Jesus has declared us righteous. He has given us His very own righteousness. Nothing we could ever earn, nothing we ever would deserve. The Bible is very clear that on our own, all of our righteous good deeds are nothing but dirty rags. Isaiah 64, look at this verse, verse 6. This describes how we are without Jesus. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. On our own? We're burnt toast at best, good for nothing. We fall short to the glory of God. 
We're doomed to destruction and separation away from the presence of the Lord. We are helpless, we are hopeless, and we are unrighteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us what Jesus has done for us, how he has given us his very own righteousness. Look at this verse. This is amazing. For he, speaking of God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect in every way. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Again, on the cross, he became sin. All of the wrath and judgment of sin the Father put upon Jesus when he hung on the cross. He became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, he's perfect in every way. He took the wrath, the judgment for sin upon himself. And now when we come to Christ... All that wrath and judgment for our sins has been dealt with, and Jesus is actually imputed to us, it's called. It's a legal term where he's given us his very own righteousness. That's why you're righteous today in Christ. Nothing we could do to earn it. We don't deserve it. Jesus has freely given us his righteousness. And it's because we're righteous in Christ that we can stand before the Father. It's because we're righteous in Christ we can go into the throne room of grace today and find the mercy we need, the help we need in our times of need. It's only because we are righteous in Christ that Jesus says here that we will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Can you imagine? It's in Revelation 21 and 22 that gives us the most beautiful picture of our eternal dwelling place. It's called New Jerusalem, and it's amazing, the eternal city that God has prepared a place for us, His bride. This is what Jesus says of this place he's preparing for us. John 14, where after he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then in John 14, verse 2, it says, For in my Father's house are many mansions, or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And again, that place is described for us in detail in Revelation 21 and 22. First of all, our city, New Jerusalem, our heavenly dwelling place, it's huge. You know how big it is? It tells us it's about 1,500 miles wide, about 1,500 miles deep, and it's about 1,500 miles high. And you don't live on the surface. You live inside. We'll dwell inside. Uh, there's a lot of people have come up with explanations like how many people could fit in there. If you had like 100 billion people in there, everybody would still have 75 acres for themselves. I, I mean, it's just telling you how big it is. That's not what it's going to be. I got my little 75 acres. No, it's not going to be like that at all. <laughs> but that's how massive New Jerusalem is. In fact, this is what the Holy of Holies Remember when God told Moses to build the tabernacle? The Holy of Holies was a model of New Jerusalem because it's 15 cubits wide, 15 cubits deep, 15 cubits high. It's a cube. It's a square. And that's what the Holy of Holies, where God's Shekinah glory, dwelt. In the New Jerusalem, our eternal city, we're told that its walls are made of pure jasper stone. It's so pure, it says you can see through it, but it's like 200 feet thick. And again, 1,500 miles up, 
it says that the streets of gold are so pure you can see through the gold. You know, it's not like our 14 karat stuff, you know. That's nothing, you know. The streets, God's saying this is how valuable your asphalt is. To me, it's building material. It's really not valuable because God owns it all. It tells us that there's massive foundation stones, 12 precious stones that make up the foundation of this city. We're told that the river of life flows from the throne, singular throne of God and of the Lamb, Jesus, and it flows through the whole city, and the tree of life is grown on the side of the banks of the, the crystal river. I mean, it's amazing. The greatest thing about this city, though, is that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell in its midst. That's why this is going to be so amazing. In fact, we're specifically told there's no need for the sun or the moon to shine upon this city because the glory of God and the glory of the Lamb, Jesus, are its light. And so here we are. He's calling us sons of righteous. We're going to shine like the sun. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Amazing. This is why... All of us will need to get new resurrection bodies. You can shine the brightest lamp or anything, spotlight upon me. Blech. It doesn't reflect. There's no light going anywhere off of me, but when we're up there reflecting the light of Jesus, it's going to be amazing beyond description. In our natural bodies, we would all vaporize in the presence of the Lord. Paul says it like this in 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 13. He says to his son in the faith, Timothy, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And before Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. I think it's getting pretty close. He who is the blessed and only potentate, that means the sovereign one, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, again, in our natural bodies, we can't approach him, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And oh, how glorious it's going to be when we stand in the presence of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all the purity of the jasper and the gold streets and everything. It's just going to be reflecting and refracting because of the light of Jesus. And we're going to be glowing and blazing in his presence. It's going to be amazing beyond comprehension. And I want to close with these verses from second Corinthians five. I share these at most funerals. I do for obvious reasons here for the believer for, we know this is second Corinthians five verse one for, we know that if our earthly house, this tent, he's speaking of our human bodies, is destroyed. You know, you die, you dissolve, you turn into worm food or whatever. When that happens, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is the place, many mansions, dwelling places, that's what God has prepared for us. For in this we groan, talking about these tents, these bodies of ours, and again, as you get older, we groan more. 
for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, for we who are in... So we're not just spirit beings floating around. For, for we who are in this tent groan. So Paul, you know, he's, he's hurting. He's groaning a lot. He reminds us of that often because he got beat up so many times. So in this tent we groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So you have the Holy Spirit in you. That's the guarantee that God is not done with you. You have the Spirit in you. That's a guarantee that He's going to take you into glory when your life on earth is finished. So we, verse 6, are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, this human body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So when you take your last breath here on earth as a believer, you wake up in the presence of Jesus. How glorious is that? That's the promise that God has given us. And we will shine forth like the sun in righteousness. Not your righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 